What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. Last week, the Supreme Court upheld the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is a landmark 1978 legislation aimed at preventing native foster children and adoptees from being separated from their families and tribes. Last week's ruling represents a victory for Native tribes who argued that the case threatened the basic tenets of Native sovereignty. It's also a blow to the plaintiffs in the case, the state of Texas, along with three non-Native couples who wanted to adopt Native children. They tried to overturn the law, saying that it discriminated based on race and that the federal government was overly intrusive. Here to discuss is Nancy Marie Spears, an enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation and the Indigenous Children and Families Reporter for The Imprint, an independent daily news outlet focused on the nation's child welfare and social justice systems for youth. Her latest article is titled, Indian Child Welfare Act Stands Native Families Empowered. Nancy, thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So we're going to get into the Supreme Court ruling specifics, but first let's start with the law itself. What is the Indian Child Welfare Act? What motivated it in its original form? And why is it important to Native communities that it's maintained? Or in the words from your article, how does it empower Native families? Yeah, it's it's such a simple question because it's only about four or five hundred years of history. <laughs> um, it's <laughs> something that I think the law is... Um, one of those things where it really behooves society to understand the history of the law. Um, you can't really understand. You have to know the damage that was already happening to Indian country prior to the enactment of the Indian Child Welfare Act in 1978 to really understand why it's needed in co- contemporary communities today and why it needs to be maintained and really why the law was enacted in the first place. So arguably, this history starts um, with the Indian Wars, which was America's longest war really lasted about, historians agree, about 200 to 300 years, um, started in 1609. And there were actually a lot of federal governmental policies that were taking place during that era that led to a lot of the compounding problems that led to the enactment of the law itself. So um, we'll start with the Indian Civilization Fund Act. As was back in 1819, it was passed by Congress to essentially encourage activities in providing education for Native Americans. It authorized uh, funds to go to both churches and other schools to stimulate what they called the civilization process. Um, Fifty years later, enacted under then President Ulysses Grant in 1869, there was the advancement of what is called the peace policy, um, which was enacted to what they considered remove corrupt. Native American agents that were supervising reservations and replace those individuals with Christian missionaries that, at the time, President Grant deemed morally superior. Um, so this all goes on, and um, we have the, in the U.S., in collaboration with and at the urging of several denominations of the Christian church, um, they adopted Indian boarding school policies to kind of continue and perpetuate the removal and stripping of culture from American Indian and Alaska Native children. Um, by 1926, nearly 83% of Native American school-aged children were attending the boarding schools, and 1926 was only a few years after the Indian Wars had formally ended. Um, so from there, we you know, have to ask ourselves, okay, well, what does the federal government do kind of in response to this? 83% of kids are in these boarding schools. What happens next? Well, then you have the um, enter the Indian Adoption Project era. This was a collusion between what was known then as the Bureau of 
Bureau of Indian Administration, or now it's known as the Bureau of Indian Affairs, BIA. Um, this is a federal effort that was done in conjunction with the BIA, as well as the Child Welfare League of America. They worked between 1958 and 1967 to essentially prioritize and incentivize the removals of Native children from their tribal homes and from their tribal families um, into white and often Christianized homes. Um, and so I can't talk about the enactment of the law itself without talking about the indigenous advocacy that led to the enactment of the law. Um, so like I said, this was the Indian Adoption Projects formally ended in 1967. And then there are some reports that come out prior to the enactment of the law in 1978 that say 25 to 35% of all Native American children had been removed from their homes through foster care or adoption. And so this was a crisis, and it was this crisis that really propelled Native American advocates to push the federal government to pass the ICWA law at the federal level. Um, and so I would be remiss if I talked about the history of the law without acknowledging the indigenous women social workers who took up the fight in 1974 to begin lobbying at the congressional subcommittee at the time that was overseeing the hearings to enact the law. Um, they were really instrumental in demonstrating the need for the law, why it was important to indigenous communities at the time that there be something done to kind of redress this huge disproportionality. Um, and so the end of the 95th Congress on October 24th, 1978, um, the law was enacted. And this was done despite monumental opposition from government entities that included the BIA. Um, so to date, there have been three Supreme Court ruling challenges to the law. There was one in the 80s. There was one in 2013. And then we just saw the results of the most recent one. So um, that's kind of an overview. It's a really fantastic overview. It really puts it into context. And I want to really appreciate you for that. Um, so like you said, most recently last week, uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act was upheld now for the first time, this time in a seven to two vote by the Supreme Court. It was more decisive, perhaps, than many folks expected. And the majority opinion was written by conservative judge Amy Coney Barrett. Nancy, I'm wondering if you could walk us through the decision and in particular how the judges on the majority side of the case interpreted it. Yeah, this was definitely, I think, a decision that a lot of us weren't expecting, especially given the last 2013 ruling up at the Supreme Court. Yes, the justices were different at the time, but essentially in that ruling, the majority sided with the white adoptive couple in that case. And that's really the opposite of what happened here. Um, in this case, the majority, which like you, like you outlined, was a very decisive vote. It was a 7-2 vote. Um, the only dissenters were Judge Alito and Justice uh, Thomas. And so it was really fascinating kind of the, the reasons why these arguments were all rejected on several grounds. So there were three major constitutional questions to the law, um, and those questions really had a lot to do with, number one, being equal protection. Equal protection was kind of the primary target of the plaintiffs, and it was really the biggest indication that the law litigation itself was really about something bigger than the Indian Child Welfare Act. And then you have uh, the anti-commandeering um, clause, which essentially says that Congress is violating the Tenth Amendment by requiring states to enforce ICWA, which is a federal law. Um, and then there's also the idea of whether Congress had the right to enact the law in the first place um, under the Indian Commerce Act. And the majority really um, rejected the arguments on, on all fronts. They said that some of them they rejected on the merits of their arguments. Some of them they rejected just straight out because of the standing of the plaintiffs in the case. Um, and so they specifically rejected arguments that 
ICWA exceeds congressional authority or what we call plenary powers of the federal government um, when it comes to regulating Native American affairs. Um, And this really got into a lot of contentious issues with the dissenting judges in the case because there was a lot of, of argument really around what counts as Indian commerce and does family law fall under that. Um, but the justices, the majority of justices ultimately disagreed that the placement preferences regarding um, foster care and adoption as it regards to keeping Native children with their relatives and, and kind of prioritizing keeping them with their relatives or fellow tribal, tribal members if possible. Um, they rejected this notion that it violated the Equal Protection Clause. They rejected this notion that um, the Cong- Congress never had the authority to enact the law. Um, they cited a very long time, they spent a very long time, the majority opinion, they spent um, citing specific case law, specific presidential law that really um, made their point that Congress has always had plenary powers over a wide range of issues. And that while they acknowledged that there were there is an uncertain boundary regarding what Congress can and cannot regulate when it comes to indigenous affairs, they ultimately decided that the provisions of ICWA fall very, very squarely within that boundary. Um, and so... Beyond that, the the majority was equally unpersuaded by claims that it was um, provisions and the placement preferences and basically the extra steps that states have to take to ensure a proper placement of a Native American child. They were not persuaded that this was a violation of the anti-commandeering doctrine, which essentially says that states can't be forced to compel federal law. Um, And... So beyond that, those were really issues on the merits of the case and on the merits of the actual arguments that the plaintiffs were making themselves. The equal protection section in particular was actually left undecided. It was left stand, not standing, but it was basically they kicked it away because of the fact that they acknowledged that none of the individual petitioners, none of the three adoptive couples, nor did the state of Texas actually have standing to even bring the equal protection issue in the first place. So because they didn't have standing, they couldn't rule or or decide on that issue at all. So equal protection is still an open question um, in ICWA. And actually, uh, Justice Kavanaugh kind of acknowledged that he did vote with the majority, but he actually, in his concurring opinion, has expressed that he had concerns about equal protection involving ICWA and that, you know, should there have been a case where these parties had standing, that would have been a different conversation for the court because the standing wasn't there. Um, it was left undecided. And so ultimately, um, a very solid win for Indian country. This was something that was obviously not ideal for the plaintiffs who lost on all three of their constitutional challenges on either standing or merits of their arguments. Um, And I also want to make clear, too, that these were all foster care and adoptive cases that were finalized. These were all cases that had happened at different state-level courts that all resulted in a finalized adoption whether that adoption was to one of the white families involved or whether that was to the grandmother, like up in Minnesota, the grandmother is now overseeing that child and has custody of her, of her granddaughter. So in all of these cases, the, the, the adoptions were actually finalized for all of these children. So that, that I think kind of added to the court's lack of understanding around the standing issue and, and the idea that they didn't really have standing because these cases were already finalized. 
And I want to tug on one thread real quick. Um, part of the argument against the Indian Child Welfare Act that was in this lawsuit used race to discriminate uh, was that it used race to discriminate against non-native adoptive families. It seems important to tug on just to better understand how race is being used as an argument against native sovereignty in the current era. I'm wondering if you could talk about that argument, how the defendants in the case debunked it, and whether that legally has implications around uh, racialization and native sovereignty uh, outside of just ICWA? Mm. Yeah, and that's a really good question. And like I said, it's still an open question because of the idea that um, when equal protection was left undecided, the equal protection question was really where they were injecting this race-based ethos around ICWA and actually around a lot of other areas of federal Indian law. Um, what, what this equal protection challenge really indicates to the rest of Indian country is that this case was much bigger than something that was just about trying to fix a supposed adoption law. This is something that really gets into a lot of other key areas of not just federal Indian law, but just human rights generally, not even indigenous rights, like actual human rights. I'm talking about things like healthcare, things like land management. We have a lot of Supreme Court precedent that really falls on the side of these laws not being race-based, but that's what these plaintiffs were trying to challenge, right? They were trying to try to inject these other ideas in order to essentially start get the ball rolling on an argument that these other laws could also be race-based because if it was race-based, this is an argument that can work in other areas. For example, we have the 1974 decision of Morton v. Mankari. This was the really, really um, prolific decision that kind of created the Indian preference model for how people get hired at the BIA, for example. Um, you know, this was something that was based on a political affiliation and a sovereign governmental entity and not a race. Um, same thing can be said for the Indian Health Services. This is a federal agency that is within the Department of Health and Human Services of the United States, and it's responsible for providing health care to American Indians and Alaska Natives. Um, the constitutional kind of home for the Indian Health Services itself is actually lies in Section 8 of our Constitution. And so there's a lot of federal governmental obligations that came from either treaties that were signed with tribes, um, whether that's laws, Supreme Court decisions, executive orders. There were a lot of things that created this idea that because of the in systemic injustices and systemic damage that had been done to Native communities since really time immemorial, since it's the contact of the Europeans, um, this is something that there is an obligation to kind of rectify the damage that was done. And this was done through, like I said, these types of issues around placement prefer or preferences for hiring within Native American organizations. Um, things like the Indian Health Service is directly related to health care for American Indians. So if that was all of a sudden deciding to be based on race, that could create a huge problem. And then we also have, you know, land manage management issues. Um, so the McGirt decision was another very um, prolific decision out, out from 2020 where the Supreme Court basically ruled um, that if a tribe's treaty did not explicitly say that their reservation had been disestablished, then it hadn't been. And this resulted in kind of a complete redrawing of jurisdictional boundaries in Oklahoma and, and the reservation boundaries in Oklahoma. And so you, these are all laws that have been congressionally, Supreme Court precedent says that governments, their government-to-government -government relationships. It's the sovereign entity between sovereign nations. 
So when you start picking at this idea that some of these things like ICWA or McGirt or Mankari, if you start picking at the idea that they're based on race, it creates a really damaging problem that is really based on a premise that is entirely untrue. Um, I want to emphasize here and, and make sure that I don't mince words. Um, tribes and tribal nations, sovereign nations around this country are multiracial political entities. We are not a race. We are a multiracial mm-hmm government relationship. We have sovereign nations. We have governments. Those governments are in a government-to-government relationship with our federal government. This is not a situation where we can say that there's a race-based element here, because really that flies in the face of every precedent that we have in federal Indian law for that. But also it goes against all of the treaty obligations that we have in this country that led to the founding and the enactment of so many states around this country. I really appreciate all that context, and it really helps us to understand what's going on, again, with the Indian Child Welfare Act that was just upheld by the Supreme Court last week. We just we have about one minute left. I'm wondering, Nancy, if you can just let us know a little bit of how our uh, Native communities reacting to this verdict. Oh, yeah. there's um, Like you had mentioned earlier, I think you're right to say that this is a victory for Indian country. This is also something that is being celebrated, but also looked to with a little bit of wariness. There is no way that we know or think that these challenges are over by any means. This is not a case that has shut the door on future, but on future constitutional challenges to law to the law. This is just something that create a very firm, very decisive decision on. Okay, here are the the arguments that may work for you in the future, and here are the ones that we have very firmly closed the door on. But ultimately, Indian country tribal leaders, um, legal experts, all of these folks know and understand and are very well aware that this is not over and that it. You know, we have had constitutional challenges to the law since the law has been enacted, and it's just one of those things where we're looking, there's still work to do. There is still ways that we can make sure that this law is protected and being complied with and being maintained properly. And so this is, a, I think, a very galvanizing time for Indian country. This is something that has really bolstered the incredible amount of resolve that tribal communities already had to protect their children. Mm-hmm. With this recent affirmation from the Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court from ICWA, I think that this really bolsters that reserve. Well, we're going to be paying attention and we'll definitely try to stay in touch to keep on track of how the Indian child welfare system is being impacted by the government. We are going to have to leave it there, though. Nancy, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>